the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 497 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. We've got Mark Miller from Chick-fil-A. We talk about how Chick-fil-A responded to the pandemic, their rapid rise, the calendars of CEOs, and how to really do leadership development. This episode is brought to you by Leader. Engage and grow your team with Leader's people development software by going to leader.com and use the promo code CARRY for 20% off your first year. And by Brushfire. Join the 30,000 plus events that use Brushfire every year. Get a $500 credit toward your first event by going to brushfire.com slash carry. That's brushfire.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. Well, I bring back uh, Chick-fil-A's Vice President of High-Performing Leadership, Mark Miller, on this episode. He is a business leader, best-selling author, and communicator. He started his Chick-fil-A career working as an hourly team member in 1977. We talked about that in his first appearance on the podcast. Today, he's a Vice President of High-Performance Leadership. He began writing almost 20 years ago. He just released Smart Leadership, his 10th book. With over 1 million books in print, more than 25 languages they have been translated into, Mark's global impact continues to grow. And, uh, well, I'm thrilled to have him back. And, you know, one of the things I'm really fascinated about is organizations that thrived during the pandemic and others that floundered. And I think if you're looking for clues into your own story, you're going to really enjoy this episode. According to MSNBC, a recent report, the great resignation is far from over, but it's for different reasons. The job market is hot right now. Unemployment is at a low, but resignations are up by 23% compared to pre-COVID times. That means people are resigning to go to better opportunities. So now it's time for you as a leader to ask yourself, are you creating a culture of people development? Well, my friends at Leader are on a mission to transform the great resignation into the great resolution. Leader software can help you engage and grow your team by helping every manager become a coach and giving every employee a voice. Leader is a people development software that helps you develop leaders at scale with consistent one-on-one -on -one meetings, clear goals, and regular feedback. If you haven't done it yet, make sure you check out leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R, no second E, L-E-A-D-R.com, and use the promo code CARRY for 20% off your first year. Well, events are back, so let Brushfire help you launch yours. Brushfire offers an all-in-one event management platform that gives you the features you need at a reasonable price. Whether you need seamless ticketing and registration, custom event pages, virtual event solutions, an attendee app for your event, or anything in between, Brushfire will help you put on your picture-perfect event. Best of all, the platform is easy to use for everyone. You don't need to be a tech whiz, so you can launch your event in minutes. Brushfire has built hundreds of partnerships with churches and ministries around the world since 2003, and their team is waiting to help you make your next event a success. Uh, join the 30,000 plus events that use Brushfire every year, including our team. We've used it. It turned out great. Podcast listeners get a $500 credit toward their first event. Get your exclusive deal today by going to brushfire.com carry. That's brushfire.com C-A-R-E-Y. 
And just before we dive into my conversation with Mark Miller, I'll tease out one more thing. Next episode, I'm going to drop a really big announcement. There's a lot of change coming, a lot of good change. And uh, I got something brand new for you. And we will tell you about it in the next episode. Excited for that. And now my conversation with Chick-fil-A's Mark Miller. Mark, it's great to have you again on the podcast. Welcome back. It's great to see you again. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to start here. And this may go way back. This may go back to your childhood. It could, could go to preschool. I don't know. When did you know you were a leader? I don't know that answer definitively, but I know when I began acting like a leader. Uh-huh. I was 10 years old, and my little league coach told me that I was going to be the catcher. And I remember going to the school library and asking if they had a book on being a catcher. And they did. And and my recollection of it is that it was written by a Hall of Famer, Johnny Bench. He was not a Hall of Famer at the time. He was actually new in the league. And I remember in the first section of the book, he talked about the role of the catcher is to be the leader. And he's and his theory was, in a in a in a baseball game, you're the only person that can see the entire field, and you've got to tell people where to throw the ball and where the cutoffs are, and you've got to manage the pitchers, and you've got to you've got to make you've got to communicate with the dugout. And so I began trying to do the things that I read in that book, and interestingly enough, people accepted that. And I don't know if they thought that I was the leader or the catcher was supposed to be the leader, but at 10 years old, I started trying to lead. Well, that is an answer I did not expect to get. I mean, I have all kinds of questions now, Mark. Like, you know, if if I'm the catcher, I would just go stand there. I wouldn't necessarily think of going to a library. And as a casual observer, of, I'm not a sports guy, but like baseball, if I'm going to watch something, it'll probably be baseball. I never really thought about the fact that the catcher is the only one who sees the entire field. And of course, the pitcher gets all the credit or all the blame, but it's the catcher who's throwing him the signs, right? Yeah. And one thing I liked about it, again, as I as I reflect, I'm not even sure I knew this in the moment, but the tactical nature of it. He had an illustration. He said, if your outfielder has to run a long way to make a play and you think he's winded, go out and talk to the pitcher. Not so that you can talk to the pitcher, so that you can let your outfielder catch their breath before the next batter. I mean, so it was, I remember it being very tactical, and I'm a little kid going, I can do that. I remember the very first game that that happened, and I went out to talk to the pitcher, and the coach said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm giving him a chance to catch his breath, and I said it out (laughs) loud, like, maybe I wasn't supposed to say that, but I didn't know I was 10, right? (laughs) This is fantastic. So I take it this wasn't, I remember Johnny Bench. I mean, yeah. This wasn't, hey, kids, here's how to be a catcher. He probably wrote that for adults, or was it a kid's book? You know, as I remember, it had a lot of pictures. Uh, So I don't know if it was a kid's book or an adult book, but it was in my grade school library, and I remember checking it out. That's pretty cool. So that sort of bit, the bug got bit. You, The the, the bug bit you. At that point, to be a leader, where where did it go from there? Well, it it probably went a bit dormant um, for a while. 
uh, I mean, I continued to try and do the things I could to influence on the various sports teams that I was part of. I, I was not always the catcher. Uh, I played other sports, but I, I tried to add value. And, and I think that would have been the extent of it, a very low-key, uh, almost a passive approach to leadership. And then once I got um, to Chick-fil-A corporate, I uh, was working in our warehouse in our mailroom and was able to do that for about six months. And they actually asked me to come out of the mailroom and start what became our corporate communications function. So I think somebody else probably saw something in me that I didn't hadn't seen in myself or at least had been dormant because I was going to school at night. I was 19 years old. And I started hiring a team and we started doing communications work, which of course makes no sense. But the only thing that gives that any sense of legitimacy is there weren't but 16 of us on the corporate staff. So when you've only got 16 people, you can let the kid do whatever you need somebody to do. And I would, I would do it like, okay, you know, what, what do you need me to do? And so, um, that was that was probably my first real leadership job, and I had to hire a team, and we had to produce work, and we had budgets and schedules, um, and so you know it's it's been a long and winding road since then. Yeah, and that's really interesting, you know. And we covered some of your first years at at Chick Fil A in our last conversation, which we'll link to in the show notes. But you describing that being nineteen years old, I mean, Truett Cathy wasn't twenty three at that point. How old would the founder? Truett Cathy have been approximately when he you would were have 19. been 45, probably 40, close yeah, to 50, which is really close to 50, maybe 50. Yeah. Like he wasn't, he wasn't young. He wasn't just starting out. Why do you think he entrusted a 19 year old with that level of responsibility? Because again, like you're saying, he was directly involved at that point in the company. It's not like it's this billion dollar, you know, hundreds of employees right. organization at that point. Right. Um, you know, again, I think I, I, I brought what I could to the table, which was a willingness to learn. Uh, I was willing to work hard. I was willing to work long hours. And, you know, I know a lot of leaders today, when they have a problem to solve or an opportunity to seize, they give it to a leader. Mm. Well, in this case, I'm guessing he didn't have any. <laughs> And, and the opportunity to seize was not mission critical. And so I think he was just willing to take a chance. Well, that's, that's impressive, you know, because I, I think about that, the older I get, there's a lot of people who gave me shots at 17, 19, 23, 30. Like I got, I got a lot of breaks as a young person. But also now, being well into my 50s, I see a lot of leaders in their 40s and 50s who are hesitant to give a 19-year-old leadership. Mm -hmm. Sitting where you sit now, decades into your career, what are the, the pros and the cons of entrusting young leaders, like really young green leaders with leadership? as you see it now? Well, I think there there's several things going on. I believe that the best leaders have uh, a sixth sense, an, an intuitive understanding of potential. Uh, and, and in many cases, I think it's certainly untapped, maybe latent potential. 
So I don't know that you give every 19-year-old an opportunity. Yeah. So I think you, there's there's some discernment and there's some judgment. And then I think you scale the, the opportunity with the level of readiness. Right. So again, I said it became our corporate communications department, but early on, it was more of an audiovisual group. And I'm setting up projectors and doing things of that nature and helping prepare our annual meeting, but somebody else was responsible for the meeting and I was a helper. Sure. And, and, and so I think you scale the work appropriately uh, for somebody's youth. And um, again, it's a little bit of a test. And I guess my last thought is whether they're 19, 29, 39, or 49, when you give somebody responsibility, I think the leader who's doing that delegation or that empowerment has a has a responsibility to coach that person and to try and help them learn and grow from the experience. Um, you know the name Howard Hendricks, and many of your yeah. uh, listeners do. He was one of my dear friends and mentors for many years, and he he would always say, "Experience is not the best teacher; only evaluated experience. Mm-hmm. That's when we learn, and that's when we grow." And I think if you entrust something to a leader or an emerging leader or an aspiring leader that we have an obligation to be sure that they evaluate that experience well and thoroughly so that it does become an opportunity for learning and for growth. Well, as the vice president of high performance leadership at Chick-fil-A, you know, a title, which I think you said last time we were together, you either invented or they invented for you. It was invented for me, but I said they can call it Whatever they want, I'll I'll I serve at the pleasure of the organization. <laughs> I want to know, Mark, what what were some other influences? So you got Johnny Bench, Johnny Bench, uh, Truett Cathy. What were some other influences in your young leadership as you developed? Well, early, um, I mean, I, I I have to mention my mom. Um, she was she was like, give it your best, don't quit you know, persistence, you know, slow and steady wins the race. I mean, she, uh, she was outspoken on that. And then my dad, he modeled those things, even though he might not be the one talking to me about it, I could see it in his life. So she would talk about it and I could watch him do it. So that was an influence. And then like many of your listeners, I had teachers and coaches that believed in me. Um, again, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. I can remember some of those teachers. I can remember coaches from high school that invested in me. And so I think I had many of those early formative influences that, that would resonate with a lot of your listeners. What did your parents do? Well, dad started in, in sales and spent about 20 years in sales. And then he spent his last 20 years, he worked for Delta Airlines out at their uh, jet base at the airport in their operations group. And mom was a stay-at-home mom uh, after we came along. So um, it was, it was again, pretty typical uh, childhood of, of that era. Of that era. Of yeah. That era. It's funny how things yeah. change. Um, so you've led at a very high level at Chick-fil-A and written, this is book number 10, I think. You've done this for decades, but you're also a believer in hobbies. So... Uh, a seemingly demanding hobby is the one I want to talk about with you right now. It's taking you to Antarctica, Everest Base Camp, the jungles of Rwanda, and the Galapagos Islands. 
Can you explain what that hobby is and its relationship to your life and well-being? Okay. Well, it, it's actually two things that have uh, converged there. My oldest son and I decided over 20 years ago that we were going to do something every year that would stretch us and that would challenge us. And so uh, we started any number of crazy things, some of which you've mentioned. He also convinced me at one point we needed to run a marathon and I'd never run to the mailbox. And so we did that and, you know, other crazy, crazy things. So you combine that with my love of photography, which I learned when I assumed the role at Chick-fil-A okay. for, for corporate communications. I found myself almost within the first week, it feels like, it may have been a month, but I was having to hire photographers and I couldn't even talk to them. So I mentioned the fact that I was, I was going to school at night. And so I started taking photography courses as, as electives while I was earning my degree so that I could understand the language to talk to the photographers. And then pretty quickly, I ended up shooting a lot of the things for Chick-fil-A myself over the years. And so I first picked up a camera over 40 years ago. So it's this uh, lifelong learning, you know, want to keep, keep growing, keep stretching, keep challenging myself and photography have uh, collided and we, we end up in some of the world's hardest to reach places. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very fascinated by that because a lot of people would say, well, I take pictures now and I take them of my family or I go for a walk near the house or something. And then I get back to work. Like you've got this unbelievable career in a rapidly growing company, plus you write books. And I mean, getting to the Galapagos or to Rwanda or to Everest base camp, I mean, that's not, oh, I took an afternoon and I went and shot some pictures. Like you're you're devoting some significant time and there's some physical challenges in each of those locations, Antarctica included. So talk about how you carve out time for something that demanding and yet that energizing. Well, I often wonder, is my son trying to keep me young or kill me? Uh, and so, you know, well, I, I, I hope he's not jury's out on me. that one. You'll, you'll see he's, in the end. Well, he's, he's, I hope he's just trying to keep me young. You know, I, I think we, again, many, many leaders listening to, to this show right now, we've got to be fit to lead. And, and that looks different for everybody. And, and there's no judgment intended in that comment, sure. but when I'm not fit, I don't lead well. And so, Again, I think there's a little bit of convergence, right? I want to do this with my son. I want to continue to grow and be stretched. And I love photography. And many of these adventures, adventures, some lowercase a, some some big A, adventures require me to get in shape. Yeah. Uh, whether I'm in shape when we say we're going to do it or not. Again, I mentioned the marathon. I'd never run to the mailbox before. And so I've got to start training so that I can ultimately run a marathon. Uh, and when we're going to go to Everest base camp, I've, I've got to, I've got to go to the gym. I've got to work with a trainer. I've got to get ready because I tell folks, I really don't want him to have to carry me. I mean, he's big, strong guy. He could, but I don't want him to have to carry me. So I, I love it when these things align. It's not like I'm doing something different when, when I'm in better physical shape, I'm better husband, father, leader, I'm, I'm better mentally and emotionally and relationally. Oh, and I can do these trips. So I love when these mm. things come together. 
What do you love about photography? Um, I think at some level, I'm a storyteller. Now, I know some real storytellers, so I, I'm not I'm not like some of them, but yeah. but I love to tell stories. And I love the challenge and and the creativity required to try and tell a story through really an an image, a single image. My on every one of these adventures, I want to try to get one shot that will embody the experience. Huh. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But how can I capture the essence of this experience in an image? And so, again, I love the, the creativity, the challenge, the, the storytelling elements of it. So it, I think it, it resonates again with who I am. So shifting gears a little bit, Chick-fil-A has come out of the pandemic stronger than ever. I was talking to your colleague, David Farmer, the other day. And I think $17 billion in the last year of sales. Is that right? Yes, sir. Wow. And it was $13 billion heading into the pandemic? I think that's pretty close. Something like that? Yeah. Which is, which is crazy. What, and I know this is like a book one day. What explains the continued rapid rise of Chick-fil-A? Because you've seen rapid rises before. You've seen continued rises before. But this feels like a continued rapid rise of a company. And I'm just curious what your angle on that would be, Mark. Yeah, yeah well, you won't be surprised by my angle. Um, it, it's leadership. And it's the leadership in the restaurants. We have been so fortunate to attract world-class leaders. For those that don't know, that, that are listening, uh, each of our restaurants is independently operated. They're company owned, but they're independent business leaders that run those restaurants. And we have attracted some amazing leaders. So, so they are our competitive advantage because there's so many good things that happen when you've got the right leader, not the least of which is they attract great people and they create a great work environment. So those people are engaged. So their level of execution goes up. So, so I, I think it, the, the leadership embodied in that operator is the, is the epicenter of, of our success. And then I would go to the Jim Collins example of the flywheel. I can't tell you if it was the 10,000th push or the 100,000th push when that thing started to gain some momentum and some energy. But we have hundreds of thousands of team members, the operators do, around the country, and they're pushing on that flywheel with every sandwich and every smile and every transaction and every my pleasure. And, you know, I'm not sure which was the most important one. I think they're all important. And so I think that's why we're enjoying success today. But it starts with that leadership in the restaurant. Can we talk about the leadership in the restaurant a little bit more? Because it is a little bit of a unique model. And I know some of your operators. And if you can just describe how Chick-fil-A structures it versus how a Wendy's or a McDonald's or a Burger King or a Taco Bell or Chipotle, would like there's corporate owned and then there's franchised. And you guys have a bit of a different take on that. Yeah, I give it to you at a high level. Uh, under, under 
many state laws, it's still considered a franchise, but it's not a traditional franchise like some of our friends that you mentioned at Wendy's or Taco Bell or other places. Uh, We own the restaurant and we own the assets. And what that does is we're not looking for men and women to come into the business who necessarily have a high net worth because many of those individuals actually don't want to run a restaurant. Right. If you're worth 50 million, you don't want to be running a restaurant. Truett's genius was if we provide the capital, we can go look for leadership, which makes the pool huge. Right. Because it's only a $10,000 investment and 5,000 of it is refundable. If someone leaves. Yeah, that's crazy. So you, you know, it's so still today, right. it's still $10,000 investment to start a chick fil a Well, for, for 100 years, it was 5000 So yeah, it, it's 10, but five of it is refundable. And so what that does is it creates this huge pool of talented men and women who, who would like to at least consider becoming a Chick-fil-A operator. And then we take some off the top every month because we've invested the capital. And then we split profits every month with that local operator. And so income potential is is really high. And um, we've attracted some amazing leaders with that approach. Yeah, you really have. And the other thing that's really interesting about the model is you don't allow owner uh, or operators, I should say, to accumulate like 10 restaurants, right? There's a, there's a very low cap on how many restaurants an operator can operate. Can you ex- clarify that yes. and explain well, why? Well, sure, sure. Um, I don't know the exact numbers today, but approximately 80% are single restaurant operators. And you've got 19% that have two and 1% that have three, more or less. That's order of magnitude. And I think part of the the rationale, going back to Truett's insight, if not his genius, is if you get the right leader and they have their focus on the business, their, their single business, his belief was they'll probably perform better than if they had two or five or 10 or 15 or 20 because they're these high caliber leaders and they have focused attention. Now, the reason we've moved to two or three is generally customer driven. When the customers demand that we put another restaurant in an area and you say, well, how would they demand that? Well, when sales get so high, we can't sell anymore. And then we start aggravating people. We think we need to put another one in here. So assuming that woman or man who's running that restaurant, assuming that operator is capable, they'll get a second restaurant. But it's 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 about proximity, it's about demand, and it's about their capacity to do that. We look at leadership capacity because one of the things we learned early on is someone could do a fantastic job in one and not do a fantastic job in two because maybe they were the system or they were the process. And success totally hinged on their physical presence. And again, we wouldn't even criticize those people, but we learned early on, if you give those people two restaurants, they're, they're going to struggle, if not fail. So part of, part of that equation or calculation, I should say, it's not an equation because there's a lot of judgment involved, but demand, proximity, and, and the capacity of that operator 
to actually replicate that performance in, in two locations. Looking back over the last couple of years through the pandemic, not every business grew, not every business and church thrived. You did at Chick-fil-A. What were some of the lessons of the pandemic? Because uh, I don't know that anybody was pandemic ready, but you seem to be able to pivot, to figure out what the market needed, and to move with the never stable environment that we've been leading in now for two and a half years. Okay, so two or three sure. things. One, I, I won't repeat everything I just said, but the fact we were nimble or agile or could pivot, we had an unfair advantage because of that operator. We've got we've got world-class leadership, right? And so that was our that was our competitive advantage before. The pandemic, it was during the pandemic, and it is now after the pandemic. So hats off to them. They and their teams, they're the heroes, and they're the reason we've done so well. Now, a couple things that we do on the at the home office, the support center, you know, we're paid to help those people be successful. And we had begun years ago working on improving our drive-through and working on the app. Those were two big enablers. We were able to better equip those leaders because even leaders need the tools and they need the resources. And we weren't starting from scratch. I noticed one of our competitors came out with an app about 18 months into it. And I'm not being critical. I'm thinking if we had started the day the pandemic was declared, it had probably taken us longer than 18 months. But thankfully, we had started those two initiatives several years early. So you ask... What's the lesson? There were many, and we've talked about that a lot as a as a leadership team um, about the lessons because we don't want to forget those lessons. But I think one of them is you need to dig your well before you're thirsty. Dig your well before you're thirsty, and uh, that served us well. Yeah, yeah. Why did you start working a few years ago on drive through in the app? What, what motivated that decision? Well, let me talk about the app because I think it's a great uh, leadership illustration. Um, Dan Cathy was our CEO at the time. And he said, we need an app. And there were a lot of people that said, eh, you know, fast food places really don't use apps. And he said, yeah, but we're going to have one. <laughs> <laughs> and we started working on it. And he started going to the meetings. He said, I want to be involved. I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be important. So it was a leader that had a preferred picture of the future and rallied an organization to follow. And that's why we have a pretty good app today, one that's getting better. Our customers actually like it because we started working on it several years ago. Any other innovations or crib notes from the pandemic, positive or negative, where you're like, ooh, tried that, that was a mistake, or um, boy, we, we, we tried this and it went better than we thought it should? Wow. I mean, we, we have talked about this a lot. Uh, and I think m- many of the lessons were personal. I think different leaders had different revelations and different insights. Some were at the department level and some were at the organizational level. I think at an organizational level, 
we realized that we could accelerate decision-making. That is something that we just have a long history of very methodical decision-making. And I think we could trace that back, I guess, all the way to Truett. Um, And I'm not even saying that's bad, but the world's moving faster. And we had begun getting some feedback from our staff members specifically and our operators to a lesser extent that we needed to move a little more quickly. And we learned during the pandemic that we actually could make some pretty important decisions well more quickly. And so we're we're encouraging each other. Let's don't go back to the pace on decision making that we had pre-pandemic. So that was that's been an important lesson for us. How did you do that? Because if you have a multi-decade tradition of decision-making, how did you do that and yet keep the accuracy reasonably decent? Well, I think that's what we're, 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 we're not just talking about making decisions faster. We actually want to make better decisions faster. And so that's, that's what we're working on. And it's, it's, it's uh, analytics, it's learn from others, it's experiments and pilots and test and learn so you don't feel like you're betting the farm. And so we can test and learn more quickly if we're going to try it in one restaurant or five restaurants. Maybe historically, we wanted to get things right and then do a chain-wide rollout. So some of it has been a change in methodology. Um, I think there are several things. And you just got to have leaders that are a little more comfortable with, with risk. Again, you're not gonna you're not gonna bet the farm, but um, you know, good is good is the enemy of great, right? Yeah. What are what are, what is an example of one or two of those quick decisions you made during the pandemic? We made the decision to reallocate hundreds of our staff to new roles. Oh wow! So we we. Again, I don't know the final number. I guess it was close to 300 folks that we we didn't let them go. We we found other work because what we realized pretty quickly is during the pandemic, once we realized it wasn't going to last for two days because we were, I guess it was a Wednesday and we said, look, let's close early today and we'll come back on Monday. Like, let's give everybody a couple of days off to get this whole pandemic thing taken care of. What and, we thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We thought it was going to be just really quick. Um, so... Early on, we decided, the executive committee decided that we're, we're not going to lay off, you know, our staff unless, I mean, it would have Guy to be absolutely the worst, 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 worst guy. I mean, so we didn't say never, but we said our intention is to retain our staff. And so we realized early on that some parts of the business we weren't going to do as much and other parts of the business we were going to have to ramp up. And so we reallocated, uh, found meaningful work that met or matched people's skills. I mean, yeah, we, we reassigned 300 people and did that in a couple of months. So I think that was pretty quick for us. Did you make other changes on food delivery? I mean, church leaders lost access to buildings. You lost access to restaurants. And again, not just in Georgia, but it was state to state. It was pretty chaotic. Right. Well, what we lost was dining rooms. Uh, and I guess 
there were might have there were some situations where we were closed, uh, but generally that was short term, and oftentimes it was because we had staffing issues. There were some local situations where we were closed because of the community, but we were seen as essential workers providing food service, and so what we lost almost across the board for a season was access to our dining rooms. And so we just, we opened other channels. We started curbside. uh, We ramped up third-party delivery, which these are things that we weren't unfamiliar with because we had been testing some of those things. So we expanded third-party delivery. We expanded uh, curbside and other things. So again, those would probably also be examples of decisions that we made relatively quickly. Most of those resided with that local operator because he or she may have decided I'm going to do curbside or I'm going to do, you know, operator led delivery. We call it, I'm going to take the food or I'm going to use these third party vendors. And so that was very helpful to have the caliber of leadership that we do in the restaurants. Well, and because there's a profit split, both Chick-fil-A and the operator is very motivated to try to get those decisions accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. The other, okay. This is a question might be a red herring if so we can throw it out, but you know, the question everyone's asking is what's it like now? Cause churches are down 40%. Some businesses are not quite where they were. Do you think that dining room dining experiences have changed permanently as a result of what we've been through or what do you see? Yeah. I I don't know. Uh, Right now it feels community by community. I was with an operator two days ago and his leadership team and their dining room is half what it was pre pandemic. And they have had their dining room back open for nine months. And so, right. But he said, people like the curbside and they like, they've, they've gotten comfortable with the drive through. And so I don't know. Uh, there are others that are back to their previous capacity. There are others that are above their previous capacity. So I think there'll be a, a community influence for sure. And some of that might even be regional as I've traveled around the country, you know, um, different parts of the country have responded differently to the pandemic, obviously. Yeah, that's true. Well, Mark, you've got a brand new book. It's called Smart Leadership, Four Simple Choices to Scale Your Impact. And uh, I'd, I'd love to start here. You asked the question. So it's about scaling. It's about choices. Why does it seem so difficult for us humans, particularly us human leaders, to make wise choices? I don't know. I'm I'm still working on that one in my 50s. Well, you know? I would just ask all the folks listening to make their own list. But it it's about competing priorities. It's about pressure. It's about stress. It's about resource scarcity. It's about distractions. It's about busyness. There, there are just so many things. It's about success. It's about fatigue. It's about fear. It's like there are so many things warring against us as humans, specifically as leaders making wise choices. Yeah. So uh, you make you suggest some smart choices to make. One of them is confronting reality. How do you do that? You know, one of my favorite mantras the last two years is, again, Jim Collins, the Stockdale Paradox. 
It's to confront brutal reality, but never lose hope. Right. Which is really hard because hope can sometimes be fake when it veneers over a problem. It's like, we have a problem here. We're not going to deal with it. We'll just pretend to be hopeful. On the other hand, reality can be pretty brutal sometimes. So what, what does it mean for a leader to confront reality. Well, I th- I think it is it is the first of the four choices we talk about. It's not more important than the others, but it's first among equals. Because if you want to lead from a position of strength, you've got to be grounded in the truth. I mean, how, how do you plan a legitimate path to a future if you are delusional about where you are today. It, it's, it's just not possible. And now I will say we all, well, I, I try not to get too personal. So I normally don't ask a leader to think about a time you didn't confront reality. I don't want to go there. It's too soon. So I say, do you know a leader who at some point in their life has been unwilling to confront reality? Yes. Every leader I've asked, has said, yes, I know a leader who at some point in their life or career has not been willing to confront reality. And I ask them why. And they come up with all kind of reasons. So I think the starting point, if you want to, if you're going to be a leader grounded in truth so that you can lead from a position of strength, you have to make the choice to confront reality. And then you have to activate the choice. And there are a lot of ways to do that. I'll just give you one quick one because this is one of my favorites and I think it's broadly applicable. And that is you got to find fresh eyes because sometimes you don't want to confront the truth because there's stuff going on inside of you. And sometimes you don't want to confront or you can't confront the truth because you don't know the truth, right? So if you'll find fresh eyes, men and women who can come around you and help you see the truth, And so people say, well, how do you do that? Well, there's so many ways. You can get a coach. You can get a mentor. You can have a personal board of directors. You can, um, I joined, I started with some other guys, a group. We've been studying leadership for 23 years. We meet twice a month, generally for about three hours. And I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about leadership. And those guys helped me confront reality. We share drafts of our development plan to get feedback and they'll say, hey, why had XYZ in here? Or when you, you know, three, four, five months later, they'll say, how you doing on that third thing in your development plan? There's some truth coming at you. Here we go. So once you make the choice, you can find ways to activate that choice. Those are some options that are, I think, readily available. Most people don't do those things because they've not made the choice. Can you tell us more about that group that's met for 23 years? Is that the same as your personal board of directors or is it different? Well, it's interesting. We have just in the last six months, we now have devoted some time. We're, we're, this is an experiment. We've been doing it for several months. We've devoted 30 minutes of each meeting for one of the guys to have a board meeting and they prepare for it and prepare us like they were preparing to go talk to a board if they're pre-reads or whatever. And they come in generally with one agenda item 
and we're going to have 30 minutes. So we're wow. actually seeing if this group can do both. Be a learning circle and serve as personal board of directors. Because I would tell you what's happened for more than two decades is we call each other for individual counsel, but we've not been as good outside the development plans on somebody who's thinking about a career change. We had a, a conversation recently. A guy said, hey, I need I need your, we're going to spend this next half hour about a potential career change. So we're, we're experimenting to make it the board of directors. How do you, first of all, that's a huge time commitment. I mean, you're a busy vice president at a multi-billion dollar company who also has a hobby and a life. And you're saying twice a month, three hours each time you sit together with these leaders and you study leadership. How does that, that does not work? include that, that does not include prep time. Okay. Talk about prep time. How do you prep for this? Well, we're, we, we've done a lot of things over the years, but typically we're doing a book study. And so there'll be questions and we're going to cover these 50 pages and here's seven or eight questions that you need to be prepared when you come in the room. So I, I don't want to make it sound like there's a lot of prep time, but you got to do your homework. Reading, you can't just, you can't do the blinking else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so how do you do it? Yeah. It, it goes back to a choice. So here's, here's what I believe. And I think, I think the men in the room that I'm talking about would agree with this statement. Your capacity to grow determines your capacity to lead. Yeah. And if, if, if you make a commitment to lifelong learning, then you're going to find ways to do that. And this won't work for everybody, and I'm not suggesting it would. And we don't have everybody there at every meeting because life happens, and yeah. we have to travel, and we do other things. But we've probably, I bet we, I bet we don't take attendance per se, but 80% of the guys are there virtually every time. There are 10 of us in the group right now. Oh, I was going to ask you how many. Yeah, There are 10. 10. And uh, it's life-giving because not only do we get the leadership, I mean, we get what many of your viewers will understand is this community that forms over time. You spend 20 plus years helping people raise their kids and bury their parents and bury children and all kind of other stuff. You do life together for over 20 years. And so you get something beyond the leadership development. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is a really um, interesting paradigm. And the best time to start that is 20 years ago. The second best time is this week or this month. But what that also says to me, Mark, you know, you think about the adventures you have, the photography you do, you know, traveling around the world personally, not just for business, um, this twice a month, three hour commitment plus the prep time. That means you're, by definition, excluding a lot out of your life. What are some things that you see jamming up the schedule of other leaders that you've said, nah, that's not going to jam up my schedule? Like, what are some things that you have either categorically or systematically eliminated from your life so that you can pursue these other things? Well, let me, let me quickly say... It, it is an ongoing battle. I, I feel like you got to almost slay the dragon every day because the world wants our time. I think if you're a leader, 
the world wants your time even more than it wants the non-leader's time. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so I don't pretend to have figured it out. Maybe I figured it out today, and I'll try to figure it out tomorrow, and I'll try to figure it out the next day. So I, I feel like I have to offer that disclaimer because it is it is a never-ending battle. But so, so a couple things. Um, and this goes all the way back. Most of your listeners are probably too young to remember Peter Drucker. Um, I would argue the greatest management and leadership thinker of the last 2,000 years. And Drucker said about 50 years ago that he had never met a knowledge worker. Oh, by the way, that's me and you. If you want to read Drucker's definition, but that's us. We have some discretion. We solve complex problems, blah, 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 blah. We're knowledge workers. He said he had never met a knowledge worker that couldn't eliminate 25% of the activities on their calendar and no one would notice. That's convicting. I don't know if that's the number for you. I don't know if that's the I don't know if that's the number today, but I am constantly looking at my calendar. I mean, this is very tactical, but hopefully very practical. Like, what's on my calendar that shouldn't be? And how did it get there? And how do we keep it from getting back on the calendar? Right? I think I think that matters. And every minute you save is another minute of capacity. If you can if you if you can take an hour meeting and it becomes a 30 minute meeting you just you just screw your capacity by 30 minutes yeah and if that's a recurring meeting every other week think about how many hours you get back over the year so so i think there's a diligence i think for me it starts with your calendar um i mean the minutes the minutes are more than minutes right the the minutes are our lives can you think about what you used to do sorry for that that you no longer do. Like you look at Mark five years ago and you're like, yeah, I used to think that was important and I just don't do it anymore. Well, I don't, I used to take more requests like on face value versus let's figure out what's the objective. Am I the right person? And by the way, do you really need me for an all day meeting? I know that sounds crazy, but but I'll ask my assistant to say, ask them if you can see the agenda and ask them if there's a portion of the meeting that Mark can add most value or is there something critical? And they'd say, oh yeah, we really need him from one to two. It's like, well, okay, then we're not going to come from eight to four kind of thing. So again, I know that's very nitty gritty, but are these internal meetings? No, this is really good. Like that could be a oh, Chick-fil-A yeah. event that you would ask oh, yeah. that question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and again, this is something I actually regret that I've changed, but it has saved some time. Used to, I don't do a lot of outside speaking, but if I was going to speak at a conference on Tuesday and the conference was Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I'd go to the whole conference. I, I really can't do that anymore. Mm. So I'll go and speak. I understand that. Um, I do yeah. more of that. Again, they're limited examples of that, but I, I have to go in and out more um, just because there is a lot going on. Well, let's get into scaling your capacity. So, you know, you do say in the book that a lot of leaders are struggling with overwhelm. You call it quicksand, right? People are just trying to swim in quicksand. Sand, it's not going particularly well. What are some of the best time and energy management theories and how have they helped you scale your capacity over the years? 
Well, I want to talk briefly about this because I've got nothing helpful, insightful at all here. Just tell you the truth. Diet, exercise, water, rest, relationships. That's a pretty good on recreation. Add all that. That's uh-huh. how we manage and steward our energy. Now, I do. I will say this. I challenge leaders. You've got a plan for everything. Do you have a personal energy management plan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like most people don't. Most people don't. And do you sleep enough? Do you eat the right stuff? Do you drink enough water? Do you get enough exercise? And so, so again, I wish I had more there. I'll, I felt guilty putting it in the book because it's like, I guess this will be a good reminder. Now, I will say energy is only part of capacity. So I want to say a little more about that. But it, if you don't have the energy to lead, it doesn't matter if you know what to do or not. Yeah, showing up and falling asleep behind your keyboard is not going to help. It's, it's been something I've thought help. about. Or showing up at a meeting where you could add huge value, but you're just too exhausted. Yeah. And yeah. so I just think the basics are the basics around energy. And How much sleep do you get a night? Well, I have, I have turned that up. I'm getting about eight hours now, whereas that's something that I changed. I used to get six, and if I needed to work around the clock, I could, and I would, and uh, I'm better with more sleep. I I add more value. My contributions improve. I ask better questions. I provide better input. I'm more creative, and so I'm I'm targeting eight hours a night. Um, again, probably averaging seven and a half right now, um, but I'm shooting for eight because I'm better. I'm with you on that. I'm better. Mm-hmm. When I do that, what what about diet? Um, obviously, the waffle fries are wonderful, and I'm sure you can get a lifetime supply if you ask somebody, and they would deliver them on the hour every hour. But we know where that goes if they're not a treat from time to time. So, what are what are you doing in terms of diet? Yeah, it's it's kind of hit or miss. Uh, it's it's one of my um, opportunity areas. My metabolism has remained relatively high. It helps me when I'm training for one of those adventures and and my water consumption goes up and my sweets consumption goes down, which is why I like to keep one of those events or two on the calendar. Um, but again, I know that diets are very personal and that different people do different things. My biggest deal is just don't eat the junk. And and when I do, I'm I'm healthier and I'm sharper and I'm clearer and Again, when when I have that little external motivation of something I'm training for, that that's helpful to me. Now it's a good prompt, and our metabolisms are different. I have a very unforgiving metabolism that seems to be less forgiving every year as I well, get I was, older. So. It's funny as you say that I ate like a twelve year old for over forty years. I mean, I'd have pizza and chocolate chips for breakfast, uh, <laughs> and and no, something happened for me around forty, and it was like, uh oh. But still, it's relatively high, so I can. I can monitor it and keep it pretty close to where it needs to be. Great. If you're um, coaching a young leader who's feeling very overwhelmed, because it's not just work, it's life, right? I've been thinking a lot about this over the years. Uh, What are some good first steps to getting out of that overwhelm mess that so often passes for life? Well, this will be the most counterintuitive thing I'll say during this segment. 
And I would say this to a young leader, a middle-aged leader, or a 75-year-old leader. You've got to put margin in your life. Now, I'm telling you, I've talked to people about this recently because this was one of our findings as we studied all these leaders. We studied for a couple of years before I wrote this book, talked to a lot of leaders. And the best leaders for thousands of years have built margin in their life. Now, I had a leader not long ago who was a bit aggravated, right? And you can imagine if you're in quicksand and somebody offers you swimming lessons, you're going to say, no, actually, that's not what I need right now. And so a lot of leaders can't hear this message of margin because they're in quicksand. But, but hang on. This leader said to me, I don't have time for a vacation. And I said, well, we can debate that later. I'm not talking about a vacation. He said, well, you told me I needed margin. I said, yeah, I'm talking about a leadership discipline called margin. He looked at me kind of funny. And I said, let me ask you this. When do you purposefully and intentionally have time on your calendar to reflect, to assess, to think, to create, and to plan? And he kind of looked at me funny. And I said, that's one of the reasons you're in quicksand because the first thing you need to think, assess, think, reflect, plan, create, one of the first things you need to work on is how to get out of the quicksand, but you don't have any time. I said, and I'm not talking about what you can do in the shower or what you can do driving to work. Any problem you can solve in the shower or driving to work is not that big a problem. You need some dedicated time to, to wrestle with these big issues. So some of your uh, audience may have seen a study that just came out of Harvard. They studied the calendars of CEOs for 12 years. I haven't heard of this. Okay, catch this. Now, uh, many of your listeners are not CEOs. I'm not a CEO. But right. what do you think about when you think of a CEO? You think of a really busy person with a big job, more or less, right? They spend 28% of their work week alone. Well, what do you think they're doing? Reflect, assess, think, create, and plan. Now, somebody said to me, well, so is that the right number? I said, I have no idea what your number is, but here's what I would tell you. The bigger your dreams, the bigger your vision, the bigger your challenges, and the bigger the obstacles, the more time you need to reflect, to assess, to think, to create, and plan. I talked to a guy who became the president of a multi-billion dollar company. And I said, well, what, what's the first thing you did? He said, well, I doubled the amount of time I spend alone. That's fantastic. Covey, Covey said this, um, public victory is always preceded by private victory. The most important time I think a leader invests in their life is their time alone. And so you, if I'm talking to a young leader who wants to get out and stay out of the quicksand or the middle-aged or the old leader, it's like margin, margin is like, it's, it's amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> it really is. It is amazing. So 
we talked about this a little bit. If uh, we've exhausted it, we can move on. But you and Chick-fil-A have changed so much over the years. And yet change is one of the most complicated dynamics a leader has to manage. So you're actually doing, well, I'll have you back on the podcast when it's ready, a deep study on change, which is fascinating. What are you learning about change? Well, we're about six, eight months into this. So, and I've got a, a really talented team of people that are that are trying to figure this out. We are going to launch in the next 30 days, a global study. We're going to talk to leaders all over the world. So, so what I'm about to tell you is preliminary. I would even say it's probably a hypothesis at this point. Sure. We think change has changed. We think what's required today from a leader is actually different than what was required of a leader even a decade ago. Because change was much more linear, sequential, time-bound, consecutive steps. I mean, you could pull out Cotter's book, Leading Change, and work through the eight steps. And when you finish that project, you could pick another one. And now leaders find themselves deluged by change initiatives. And so we think it's a fundamental, we think it's always on, it's continuous, it's simultaneous, their interdependencies like never before. And so we're trying to say, what is the appropriate response in a fundamentally new paradigm? Mm-hmm. And we don't even, we don't even have language for it yet, but, but it's, it's, it's not what it used to be. It's not our change is, you know, for one of the pastors in your audience, we're building a building. Okay. You may be building a building, but you're launching small groups and you're trying to do this and you're trying to do that and you're trying to start a satellite campus and you've got an international missions project. And it's like just the complexity that comprises the quicksand is also the complexity that is that has turned change on its head. And we're not sure when we try to help leaders around the world with this new paradigm, we're not sure what to tell them. We don't think the answer is do the old methods faster. (laughs) We don't think that's the answer. So we've got still more questions than answers at this point, but we're excited about it. That work should be finished in 2024. So I hope I can talk to you again before then, but by 2024, we'll have that. Well, I'm very anxious to see what you discover. And yeah, I wonder whether the framework for change we've had to figure out in the last two years is actually similar or related to the framework well, I think for the it, future. I, I think Quick it may pivots. be. I think it may be because it's not the framework you used 10 years ago. I don't think. No. I mean, the one you used in the last two years. Yeah, right? it's chaos. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's right. How do you... How do you um, strategically, purposefully, and sustainably lead change in the midst of chaos? That's what we're trying to answer. That's a That's great what we're trying question. To answer. So I look forward to comparing <laughs> notes with you on that. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, right. one more question for you. What are you paying attention to right now that you think most leaders are not paying attention to? Well, 
My answer two years ago was culture. Uh-huh. And so I'm still thinking about culture. But here's, here's why I set it up that way. A lot of leaders are thinking about it now. But they're challenged by the whole idea of culture. Part of what we've done over the years as we've worked on these various projects is we try to identify current and near-term challenges that we can help leaders address. Two years ago, we saw a lot of leaders struggling with culture before COVID hit. And we just think it exacerbated the whole thing. And I've talked to so many leaders during COVID that, man, again, their world's gotten flipped upside down. And some of them would tell you and have told me that their culture is is on life support, that, that COVID basically killed their culture or tried to. But then we talked to some leaders whose culture thrived. They thrived during COVID, you know, that it was in fact their finest hour. Well, I think it has a whole lot to do with how strong was your culture before COVID. And so we started on this project. Yeah, fair. We started on this project way back trying to figure out how to help leaders deal with with, uh, culture. And what we believe is that it's probably more needed now than it was when we started this work two years ago. We think COVID basically accelerated virtually everything in the world by at least five years, maybe 10. Like the use of an app to order food. We were headed there anyway. It just happened quicker. This whole remote work thing, that's where yep. the world was going. It's just happening quicker. Uh, you know, having stuff delivered to your home instead of going to the mall, that kind of stuff was happening. It's just been accelerated. And so I think the urgency of um, for leaders to deal with culture, the timeline's just been pushed up. That they Leaders are going to have to deal with this if they want to unlock the potential of their organization. Well, Mark, I got to thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. The book is called Smart Leadership. Uh, Your latest one is out there now in the wild. And uh, thanks for what you're doing. And just thanks for being so passionate about leadership for so many decades. It's been encouraging every time we're together. I learned so much from you and I'm excited for the next time. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Well, if you'd like more or to dig in to some of the details that we talked about in this episode, head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 497. We have show notes for you there. And I want to thank our partners for this episode. For Leader, you can engage and grow your team with Leader's people development software simply by going to leader.com. That's L-E-A-D-R, no second E, L-E-A-D-R.com. And use the promo code Kerry, C-A-R-E-Y, for 20% off your first year. And join the 30,000 plus events that use Brushfire every year and get a $500 credit toward your first event by going to brushfire.com slash carry. That's brushfire.com slash carry. Next episode, Albert Tate and I talk. And we have a great conversation about some of the racial divide we've seen in so many countries. But even more importantly, we talk about how to avoid being triggered in conversations about race, really important. Um, some of his story, and then um, steps you can take to steward the privilege that you have if you have some. Here's an excerpt. And I think Gen Z is frustrated because we showed them a Bible and then we showed them the picture about the church and our, our, we don't look like our picture. Hmm. And they're frustrated with the hypocrisy because we talk about love, 
but then all you do is condemn. You talk about a oneness in a big family table, but all you do is tell the people talk about the people that are disqualified from being at the table because of their sins. So I think Gen Z is frustrated by the hypocrisy and they are excited and hopeful about the picture of oneness of all being invited at the table. And I feel like with that dynamic, there's an opportunity for the church to get it right. That's next time on the podcast. Hey, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Uh, We see a growing audience every month. We're so grateful for that. Also coming up, Daniel Pink is back. Seth Godin makes a return appearance. Also going to talk to Karen Gordon, Ramit Sethi. Uh, Who else have we got? We've got uh, Jesse DeYoung and Jim Bergen. Excited for that. Stephen M.R. Covey. Patrick Lencioni is coming back. Chad Veach. Uh, and so many more. And uh, we do this because of you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all that you do. And I know it's still a hard season for leaders. So if you are struggling in any way with just trying to keep everything in the air and you're looking forward to summer vacation as your salvation, but basically until then, you're just going to be tired and discouraged, I've got a free gift for you. I want to give you something free. Simply text the word THRIVE, T-H-R-I-V-E, to this number, 833 877-8558. That's 833-777-8558. And here's what I'll do. You text the word THRIVE to 833-777-8558. I will send you my burnout assessment and THRIVE calendar as a thank you. So you can go through and see, are you really burned out? Is it something else? These are the systems that I use, and these are the tools that will help you get your time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. And uh, I've got some free resources for you. So that's THRIVE to 833-777. 77-8558. The number is also listed in our episode show notes, so you can find them there as well. But that's Thrive to 833-777-8558. And thank you so much for listening. And you know why I do stuff like this? Because I wanted to help you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.